So Thanksgiving weekend, and of course, we've got all these traditions of how we give thanks. A big one being the big, uh, the big Thanksgiving meal and all that kind of stuff. But uh, let me ask you this. Does anybody have any tradition other than big family meal or whatever to, on Thanksgiving that they always do? Do you have anything that you do? Or are you all like dull like me and just kind of interested in the food? <laughs> all right, there we go. We got, what, do you, what do you guys do? There you go, just a little sharing of that. Awesome stuff. Make sure that's Thanksgiving in the center of it. Good stuff. Well, today we're going to talk about Thanksgiving because it arises really very well in our schedule of, of the passage because the, 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 the portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today, it holds not even a, a reason to give joyful thanks but also outlines for us perhaps a creative way in a way that we haven't normally thought of uh, how to give thanks, the means or the ways or the, the practices that we can do in order to give thanks. So let's uh, go through this and you'll see right away, it's a very familiar passage of scripture. Uh, you'll see right away some of the reasons to give thanks, but, but kind of mind your heart a little bit there and see how it is that the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit says, here's ways that we can give joyful thanks. So let's pick it up where we left off last week, and that is Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Here we go. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, which is what? Who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Some of your translations will say something to be grasped, Okay. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave. Serve is a bit of a weak translation. Slave is a better one. Being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, that he looked like a man, but there was more, more to him than that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of all that stuff, God, the Father, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of the Father. Man, what a reason to give joy-filled thanks you know, the truth is that this passage is very familiar to us, and, and we kind of grab the whole of it, but, but it is a deep, deep passage. It is, and more stuff has been written on, on some of these words in here. There's three or four very, very technical words that are so profound, book after book after book after book after book has been written on this. I won't make you suffer through it, but it's so complex. You know, I listened to some lectures, and not only did I not listen to the lectures at double speed, which is I normally do, because everyone should talk faster than they do, and then they can be like me. Not only did I listen to it, I couldn't listen at double speed. Not only had to listen to it at normal speed, I had to listen to him twice, once at the beginning of my studies, and then I had to go back and listen at the end after I'd done a bunch more reading to really kind of grasp what was going on. This is a profound, marvelous, deep, rich, talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and it, it, the whole point is, as we think about who Jesus is, it gives reason to give joy-filled thanks. It starts off, I mean, let me just kind of outline it for you, okay? It starts off with this whole thing about this reality that Jesus, who lived amongst us, walked amongst us, loved us, died for us, cursed for us, all that kind of thing, taught us, he is 
God. Being the very nature of God. Some of your translations will have being in the form of God. What it's saying is that, that he, he was the one who, who revealed the essence of God, the being of God. He is God. He was God always from the beginning. There's this idea of the pre-existence of Jesus before he took on flesh. And then he came in the full sense God. The very essence, the very expression of God's core character. Jesus is God. And when we think about God, we should think Jesus. When we think about the shape of God, the looks of God, the actions of God, the prime expression of who God is, the fullness of the expression, is Jesus. Jesus is God. That is really reason to give thanks to God. But here's why it gets more exciting than that. It's because of what Jesus does as God. Because what Jesus does is that Jesus reveals that humble Self-giving. Humble self-giving is the essence or the core of God's very character. You know, it's good sometimes to just kind of step back and remember that the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us, it was written to some other people. And, and this passage was written to, to the Philippians. And remember what we said about Philippi, you know, it was this Roman colony, you know, there, and, and they were very proud of, of being Romans, and there was a couple of different temples, because in those days they, they began to worship some of the emperors, right? Some of the Augustus, they, they sort of worshipped them. They, they deified them. They, they realized that they were, they were men, but because of their exploits, after they died, then they raised them up and said, actually, these guys were so good. They did so much powerful things. They're so amazing that actually they're gods and we can worship them. And there was a couple in Philippi of temples to the royal family because to be powerful and to be a conqueror meant that you were worthy of being God. And one, one contemporary wrote and said this. He must have wrote it because we have it now. We didn't hear him. So, <laughs> Caesar has been the servant of the state. How? By winning victories. Military conquest. By winning victories. By putting up money for public works and so on. We therefore hail him as Lord and entrust ourselves to him as Savior. You see that? Caesar's done these great exploits. He's taken the armies into battle. He's defeated the enemies. He's crushed them. Now we're rich because of the oppression of these other states. We get these guys as slaves. It's awesome stuff. And then you know what he's done? He's done some nice things for us too, some civic things. He's built some buildings and he, he's built some roads and all these kind of things. But as Lynn Kohik points out, you need to understand, in that culture, in the, in the uh, um, patron, uh, what's this, uh, this is why you should write things down when you're over 60. What's the client, client, that's the word. In the patron-client uh, system, when you did good things, it wasn't because you cared about the other people so much, it was to elevate your standing within society. It was just a societal thing to do. The famous example, if you want to look this up, you look up what Augustus wrote about himself and had it published outside of his tomb. It's just exploit after exploit, exploit, and we're like, uh, you shouldn't really be talking about yourself like that. I mean, it's fine if your wife says that about you, but you shouldn't. 
But in that culture, no, 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 it was all about shame. It was all about becoming, becoming a patron. And, and so, and so these, that's what they did. So these idea of God in the pagan religions were gods who were powerful, who were in fact kind of, kind of selfish, who looked upon human beings mostly for their own good. This is what a god was like. This is how we made him into godhood, with the Caesars, the emperors, who crushed other people and around themselves, surrounded themselves with wealth and power. That's what it meant to be a powerful leader. That's what it meant to be a god. You know, today, there's some criticisms of God. And it goes something like this. What kind of an egomaniac would demand of his creation that they worship him? What kind of a sick mind would demand that people bow their knees to him, otherwise he'll squish them like a bub and contend them for eternity in hell? What, what kind of ego would do that? And so it's kind of the same idea. It's this idea that God is this grand poopah who just is, you know, exercising massive power on little peons down here below. If people that think that, they have not taken Philippians chapter 2 seriously at all. They haven't dug into this whole thing. Well, why do I say that? Because look at how Jesus reveals the character and the nature of God. The first thing he says about it is that Jesus, who, who is God, did not see Godhood as something to be grasped or something to be clung to or used for one's selfish advantage. That's what that word kind of means, and there's big debates on exactly what it means. It, it can either mean that, you know, I'm not God, I'm not having this powerful thing, and so I'm going to grab it, I'm going to steal it, sometimes robbery. Even some of that old translation, is it King James? Consider not robbery to be God. Is that King James? So it's the idea of grabbing something that you don't believe. Or it could mean, I've got something and you ain't getting it. I'm going to grasp onto it. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to it. But it, what it probably means, the NIV probably has the best translation for that. It's that you have something and you're going to maintain something, but you understand that it's not for you. You understand that the, the, the reason that you have that. It's not something to be grasped, not something to be robbed, not something to be hoarded, but it's something, in fact, to be given away and to be used for the advantage of other people. You see how opposite to the idea of what the Philippians had for what gods were like than what Paul is revealing to them. He's saying, listen, understand that God in Jesus understands that being God means to give oneself up for the sake of others. It's the definition of it. But then he doubles down on it. He goes on, he says, as a matter of fact, not only did, did Jesus say that being God is, means that we don't grab things, we don't hold on to things, we don't use everything for my advantage. He goes on and says, as a matter of fact, what Jesus did is that he made himself nothing, or the word is he emptied himself. Some of your translations will have that. And there's, man, you want to talk, there's many, many books written on this. What does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? Well, it does not mean that he emptied himself of being God. He carried on being God, God in flesh. I like how Tom Wright puts it. He didn't empty himself of divinity. In fact, he was defining the character of divinity. 
So what did he empty himself of? Well, well some people, a good, a good bunch of people, Ross Hastings, for example, they say, well, kind of what he did is he sort of, he sort of emptied himself of the, of the manifest glory like the whole thing where you can't see God without dying, you know, that, that whole deal, you know. And, and he, we sing about that, don't we, at Christmas time, you know. We, we sing that, that, that whole carol, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Christ, the incarnate deity. And, and then we see in the Bible, the New Testament, where it kind of leaks out a little bit every once in a while. Remember the, the Mount of Transfiguration? Remember Jesus up there with some of his favorite boys, the three guys? And, and, and then, and they, you know, he reveals his glory a little bit. It kind of slips out. And so it could be that, that it's God, you know, when he took on flesh, he made it so that we could interact with him, so that we could touch him, so that we could hold him, and, and we, could, we could stand to be before him and see his face without dying. It could be that. But I like what Lynn Kohick and, and Hawthorne and some of the other theologians say. There's a couple of ways you can look at that emptying himself. The first way is like he emptied out of himself, like he dumped out his glory. He emptied out of himself. Or it could be he emptied himself out of the Trinity. Do you see that? He emptied himself or he emptied himself. He, he became in, in flesh. He became one of us. He emptied himself. He poured himself out of the glory and the exalted position of the Trinity into humanity. It's a poetic way of saying that Christ poured himself out totally. He totally poured himself out for the sake of other people. Because he's revealing the character of God. We serve and love a God who completely pours himself out for the sake of those who have made themselves his enemy. But that's not good enough. That's not good enough yet. What did he do? He became a slave. He took on the form of a slave. And the word is exactly the same who in the nat- you know, exists in the nature of God. Same thing. He became what is the very essence of a slave. He took on the character of one who exists and acts surely and purely for the sake of another person. F.F. Bruce says it well. He says, listen, what did Jesus do? He displayed the nature or the form of God in the nature or the form of a slave. He became a slave. We serve a God, we worship a God who chooses to become a slave to you. Who completely empties himself out, who says, you know what, I'm going to do what is best for you. It's, it's, It's craziness. But this is how Jesus is revealing the character of God. He's a God who wants to serve, a God who wants to love, a God who wants to save. But this slavery is not a good enough humiliation for him. And I say humiliation because that's actually a better word than humble. Like it says in, in NIV, you know, he humbled himself, you know, took down the cross. No, 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 no. You need to understand that, that this idea of humility as a virtue that entered Western society with Christianity. The Jews had an idea that humility was, was something good. But for the Greco-Roman world, the Greek and Roman, there was no such word as humble. There was just humiliation. Remember that whole thing about patron, client, honor, honor and shame? Anything that you did to lower yourself was a humiliation. 
That's why half the law course that were going on there was somebody, you know, got dished by somebody, and you're humiliating me. And so, and so this is, this is, you can look it up sociologically. There's that Australian sociologist, Dickinson, I think his name is. And he, he points out, and even linguistically, I can't remember, I think it's, Hastings points out that this, this word for humble in, as a positive virtue only appears in Greek literature and writing after, after the, the, the Christ event. Because all they understood was humiliation. And so he goes on and says, and so not only was he a slave, but he suffered the humiliation of death on a cross. Because for them, death on the cross was, was the most shameful death possible for the Jew. You remember what the Old Testament says? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And for the Roman statesman uh, Cicero, or Cicero, depending on which way you want to say it, he wrote this, listen to this. He, he was like, you know, 60, 70 years before Christ, Adolf. He wrote this. Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. It was a word that was not even used in polite culture. It was such a shameful, despicable act, this, this ultimate expression of the raw power of the emperor and Rome. And Jesus did that to bear the consequences of my sin. And what Jesus does in this, in this humiliation, he, he moves the cross from an expression of raw, naked power to a symbol of raw, naked love for those who hate him. He completely flips it upside down. And he did that because that is the nature, the character, the essence of the God we worship. One who spends himself, one who humiliates himself for the sake of people who've made themselves his enemy. This person and act of God, Jesus, in who he is and what he has done is reason to give thanks. But just in case, just in case you've got this horrible theology, which more people than we realize have, where you've got kind of like old man God, God, God the Father, and he's full of wrath and rage and hatred and beat people with a stick and wipe you out and wipe them out. And then, but thankfully, Jesus steps in the way and stops the Father doing to you what God really wants to do. Just in case that's kind of your idea of God, which, which too many of us actually have, the next little portion here is about God the Father. And what it's saying is that God the Father agrees that that's the expression of his character. With the Son's lived out definition of God, who is one who is humiliated for our sake, who empties himself for our sake, who gives himself up for our sake, who delights and loves us so much that he does these things. He, he agrees with that as the character. And so what does he do? That's what it says when he gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That, that is not, you know, God rewarding him. Good boy, you did what you should have done. Now I'm going to give you this name. It's not like that's not how it works. If you've got the idea of reward in your mind, switch that word reward 
out and put in the word vindication of his actions. This is God the Father saying, yes, this is our character. Yes, this is the God I am. When, when what God the Father is doing is he's, he's pointing down at Jesus on the cross and he's saying, yeah, I agree with this. That's what it means to be Lord. That's what it means to be Savior. That's what it means to express my character in all of its finality and completion is to hang on the cross for the sake of those who rebel against me. That's my character. That defines me. That's what I look like. And so because of that, yes, I'm going to give Jesus the name above every name. Name of Lord and Savior. Because you see, it's Jesus who's Lord and Savior. Not Caesar that he writes to these Philippians who have been enamored with the Roman royal family. And then he goes on and he quotes Isaiah chapter 45. Now Isaiah, he was a prophet in the Old Testament, you know, a few hundred years before Jesus. And this, this, this quotation of every knee shall bow and so on is a quotation about this, about God. And it's one of the most uh, radically monotheistic quotations that there is where God is saying I am the only God and so what he's doing there is he's saying yeah and the reason that this is the complete expression of who my character is is because that's me because God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit are one with the same character and the same heart and the same desires now that is reason to give thanks because that is the God who loves us and serves us and shames himself for us out of love. And so if we believe that, we want to respond to that. We want to, we want to give thanks <laughs> that this is the God who he is and this is the God that has done these things. And so, and so he gives us a way to give joyful thanks. And the first one you notice right away is, well, <laughs> we bow to Jesus and glorify the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. It's this whole idea when we sing and when we pray and when we bear witness to the goodness of God. That is a way of giving thanks to God. As a matter of fact, it's kind of radical worship. Because in those days, um, when they prayed and when they worshipped, it's kind of like us when we sing, which is a, you know, a form of praying, right? And really we sing. Is they stood for it. But when they wanted to get really serious, when they really wanted to, to, to express that this is a big deal, then, then and only then in that culture would they kneel. And so what God is saying here is that, listen, the way to give thanks is to have this radical worship of being on your knees before the Son for who he is. Great expression of worship. Now, that's my introduction. Let me go now into what really this passage is about. You've got to keep all that stuff in your mind because that's the introduction. Introductions are important, okay? Sometimes it's easy for nerds like me to get so wrapped up in, in some of those things that I miss the main point that God the Spirit has inspired Paul, the apostle, to make. And here's actually the point of the passage. The point of the passage is this. This great ode to Jesus 
is simply an illustration of how we should live. Because you see, you're going to take this great hymn to Christ in the context of what we've been looking at so far. And, and way back there, remember in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, listen, what you need to do is live, your, live a life worthy of Christ Jesus. And then we saw last week the, this, these, the first four verses, if there's any encouragement in Christ, be united in Christ, and it comes to love, common share in the spirits, and tenderness and compassion, making my joy complete wide by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you towards the interest of others. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, let me just show you how serious about this I am, this whole thing about the unity that we have when we serve each other, when we love each other, when we're, giving, when we're willing to give up our power for each other, when we're willing to use whatever influence that we have for the sake of the other person. The ultimate example of that is God. And if Jesus can do it, so can you. To live in unity by way of humility is this great expression of how we worship God. And so whenever it is that we use whatever power we have, whatever influence we have, whatever position we have, whatever money we have, whatever social power we have, when we realize that that isn't something to be grasped, that isn't something to be clung to. That isn't something for us to hoard and build up and make more of. It's given to us to use for the sake of others. To the point where we're humiliated and people think we're crazy giving up what we have. That's this great expression of the worship of God. And the point is this. We can actually do it. Because we go back to verse 5. Which is a command. And say, look, look, this isn't an option to live this kind of life. I don't know about you, but for me, it's kind of optional. I think I'm a bit of a hero if I give away power, if I give away this, or I, you know, oh, shut up, great guy. Mm -mm. This is this command that if you're a follower of Jesus, Alan, you'll understand that everything you are and everything you have is for the sake of other people. And whatever it is that you accrue to yourself, that's for the sake of other people. And you actually can do it. As hard as it is, you actually can do it. Why? Because if there is anything in Christ, if we're in Christ, we become part of his body. And the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to understand that the greatest worship, it's good to sing, it's good to pray, it's good to read the Bible. But the greatest worship is to be a person like our God. 
And though we are made in the image of God, because we're made in the image of God, we don't consider power and wealth and grandiose positions as something to be grasped. But instead, we humble ourselves. We understand that these things are for other people. We, we empty ourselves. And we humble ourselves to the point of being a slave to others. Even to the point of the humiliation of death on a cross. Where we kill our advantage for the sake of other people. And then, when we humble ourselves, the day will come when God himself will lift us up and say, well done, my servant. You portrayed to a watching, questioning, hurting world what I'm really like. Almighty God, you are God and you are awesome and your whispers shatter mountains and you are creator and you are Lord. When you hold this expanding universe in your hand. But when you wanted to reveal the core of your character, you took on flesh, you emptied yourself, you became a servant of your creation, you died for us, and you rose again saying that this is life. Lord, we are sitting here in this room and probably watching online. We are probably, all of us, an advantaged people. And it's good to enjoy your blessings in our life. But God, may we understand this Thanksgiving that the best way to give you thanks is to serve others with whatever it is you've made us to be and allowed us to have. So come Holy Spirit and help us to realize just how radical your expectation is. Because I want to deny it. And I don't very often want to live it. Because I like grasping, holding on to the things that I have. Influence, wealth, position, whatever. Make me more like you, Jesus. Make us as a church more like you for the glory of the Father. Amen.